Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and worship you in song. And Lord, you are so special to us. You love us, you care for us, and you have died so that we could be freed. You paid the price and then you rose again so that we could be, live in victory. We thank you for that in your son's name. Amen. We are, we are uh, going into the next uh, part here. We finished up as far as I would ever plan on going into Genesis this last set. So we're going to be starting the book of Philippians here now on Sunday mornings. And we're just going to give some history on Philippians. Uh, the letter is written by Paul. It's one of the Pauline epistles. It's written from Rome while he was in uh, prison there waiting for execution. And so we're just kind of setting up this... Uh, thing. Uh, Paul had visited the, Philipp the Philippians in Philippi <laughs> on his second vis uh, missionary visit. Uh, the, the town of Philippi, just so you kind of know, is kind of an interesting place. It is the crossroads of the old Roman days between Asia and Europe. And it's going, and as far as we understand through, through Acts and history, it was the first European Christian church. Uh, even though it's right there on the border <laughs> of Asia. So we're just trying to set up some of this uh, uh, information for you. Uh, it was a very prominent town in its day. It had many rivers and, and natural resources. It had a lot of silver and gold. It was a very prosperous town. And any town that's in the, the junction of multiple roads is a prosperous town just by being a travel place in any way. So we just want to go through this. Uh, the epistle was written to the church. Uh, when Paul was there, we have just a few verses of, uh, in, in Acts, Acts 16 and 17, or when Paul was in Philippi. He met Lydia, the seller of purple there, who was a rich, rich individual who had a thriving business, who took them in and gave them a place to stay, and the church started in her home. And remember, when the churches started back in those days, they started in homes. Um, and our, their homes were quite different than ours. They usually had a big, if you had any wealth, you had a big room where people could gather and, and opened up usually into the foyer, into the courtyard rather. And we have the story of the Philippian jailer when Paul was arrested because the, they cast out the demon out of this one girl and, their, and the owners of the girl who was using her to prophesy got mad at him and stirred up the city into rebellion. He was arrested, beat before they realized he was a uh, Roman citizen, which was against the law. <laughs> he was put into the jail. God sent the earthquake. The Philippian jailer got healed. Uh, got healed, yes. Got spiritually healed. <laughs> and uh, his family. And then Paul, and then he goes, okay, they tried to release him in silence. And Paul goes, you know, you beat me in public. You're going to publicly apologize because you beat a Roman citizen. <laughs> Just all these stories, if you don't remember them, they're in Acts. <laughs> Just trying to help us get the, get the place on it. Um, the message was sent by Epaphras, who is a name you might remember from certain different stories. Epaphras came from that area, and uh, God, he sent him to the, back with him. And at one, in another epistle, he says, matter, I think it was Ephesians, he says, you have been fairly sorry because you heard that Epaphras was sick unto death, but he is healed. Uh, so Epaphras is mentioned many times in the scriptures. And uh, it's a letter that Paul, this letter is one that Paul wrote, writes showing great affection to the people. He loved the church in Philippi. In Corinthians, he tells us 
that he wasn't asking the Corinthians for money because the Philippians were giving them gifts. They were the ones that helped support Paul on his mission trips. So this idea of supporting missionaries from churches is a very old <laughs> thought process. It goes all the way back to the very first church, churches. And here in, in Philippi, they helped support Paul. They helped bring, bring a gift for Paul. So we're trying to give you just a little bit of information before we start the, the chapter. Let's see. He looks at this and the outline of the book starts out with just a salutation from Paul and Timothy. Timothy is with Paul. And if you've read the book of Timothy, Timothy Paul goes, writes to Timothy, come to me as soon as possible and bring, and bring my, bring my uh, cloak and especially the scrolls because <laughs> uh, he wanted to study. And obviously Timothy made it back there because he's with him at the prison. Not that he was imprisoned, but he was visiting Paul. Uh, he exhorts them to, toward unity, to seek the mind of Christ, and to work with God. So there's a lot of exhortation. This is a loving letter to the, Phil, uh, to the, to the Philippians that he gives. It's not a harsh letter. Mo most of the Corinthian letters are very harsh. He's got a harsh tone of correction. Uh, we saw some of that in, ex in Galatians and, and Ephesians. A little bit of that correction. In, in Philippians, we see a lot of just his love pouring out to them. He goes, you've been a good church. He's going to exhort them a little bit, but he's also going to say, you, you've been doing things right. Keep doing them. And that's an exhortation we need a lot, is keep doing what you're doing when it's right. Because how easy is it for us to feel like, well, I'm just not getting anywhere. You know, we, go, we start doing good things, and nothing seems to be happening, and, and all of a sudden we go, we start slipping. We let our guard down. And this is easy to let our guard down. You know, we're going along, everything's going fine, no problems, <laughs> and we let our guard down. And the next thing, we find ourselves in the bottom of the pit wondering how we got there. And it really is that we let our guard down and we just kind of forgot <coughs> that we were in battle. We forgot that we are sinners that, that easily fall. Paul's exhorting them, keep doing what you're doing. You've been doing it, doing it well. He commends them, he warns them against the Judaizers. And we've talked about Judaizers a lot. Okay, Paul had this thing. Every time he preached in some, some city, as soon as he left, and even before he left oftentimes, the Judaizers would come in and tell him, Paul. basically they told him, Paul's message is really good, except you need to be doing all these other things. Be very careful if you listen to any preacher, any teacher that says, God's grace is wonderful, but you need to do. As <laughs> soon as they say, but, they're going to tell you something that's not vital. Is it important to do righteous, good things? Yes, it is. But not to get saved, not to please God, not to, not to honor God. Our salvation rests on grace and God's forgiveness alone. For by grace are we saved through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. None of our works does anything toward our salvation. Now, does it make our life better to do good works? Absolutely. Good works have good rewards. God's rules and laws have good rewards. When we say that it is not working toward our salvation, we're not saying that his rules are worthless. We're just saying they're not going to get us any, any marks with God. It's all by grace. Now, and if you live by God's rules, you're going to live a longer life, most likely, because 
You're treating your body the way it's supposed to be. You're doing, you're not having the consequences. So it is good to do good works, but it is not good to use them as, this is what makes me righteous. This is what makes me special with God. Because it doesn't. It's only Jesus Christ. And he says then, he says, to beware of experiences. How often do we get into our experiences and start saying, I'm not feeling happy, I'm not feeling joyful, everything seems to be going wrong, therefore I must not be right with God. We need to be careful with that kind of thinking. We look at somebody like Job. God's testimony of Job was, here is a righteous, perfect man, there's nobody like him, Satan, go ahead and test him. And then everything was taken away from Job, and I can guarantee you, he had no happiness sitting there scratching his body with the pottery because he was so miserable with the boils and everything on him. Having all of his wealth taken away, having his children killed, and then having his wonderful friends coming along telling him how bad he was and had to have deserved all of this. What wonderful friends. With friends like that, who needs any enemies? But, you know, we want to be careful that we don't look at things by experience. You know, our emotions will lie to us all the time. Our emotions will tell us that somebody, that we, that somebody likes us or dislikes us. <laughs> and it may or may not be true, but the, we don't want to be listening to the emotional side of things. Many people get divorced in this day because their emotions are telling them, I don't love this person anymore. Well, the sad thing was that it probably is true. They never loved the person. They had emotional feelings for the person. They, were, they had uh, lust or infatuation for the person. But love is a choice. We want to be careful that we don't allow emotions to rule us. How many times have you gotten mad at somebody and said something that you regretted later? Especially when you found out that you were mad at them for no good reason. It was bad enough if you said something you regretted and they deserved it. <laughs> but oftentimes when we get mad, we start saying things that aren't deserved, aren't, aren't needed to be said. And if we had just stepped back and let our emotions die down, we wouldn't have said what we said, or we might have said it differently to get a good benefit out of the deal. Emotions and, and experiences, we want to be very careful of that. Because God has promised that everything's going to be for good. So we want to be able to look at that. Then he goes more ex exhortations to them to be Christ-like, to beware of the enemies of Christ, to look for the second coming. This I love this one. This is very much. Are we looking for the second coming of Christ? The rapture? Are we looking at it with excitement? You realize there's a day coming when Christ is going to come and take his church out of this world. And then seven years of trial for the for, the, for, the, for those who aren't his people. And then he comes back to set up his kingdom. And we will come back with him in victory. This is the hope that we have. Before all hell breaks loose on this world, the church will be taken out. One day we'll just be snatched out of this, out of this world. It's a wonderful thought. When you think that everything's going wrong and everything, that they can't get any better, you know that it's going to get better, otherwise we'd be gone. <laughs> All right? When it's not going to get better, we'll be gone. 
We'll be up in heaven celebrating for seven years and then coming back with him in victory. Paul exhorts his people in Philippians, look for that day. Talk about it. Get excited about it. All through Paul's letters, he talks about the second coming of Christ. He's coming back. Jesus said, the angel told the disciples when they watched Jesus ascend, why look you up to heaven? He's coming back the way you saw him. He's coming back. He is going to be victorious because he is already victorious. And he will fulfill his victory and come back and rule this world. And this is, this is what we're looking forward to. And then, in, and then he said, be steadfast. And we're going to get to all these points in detail later on, but be steadfast. How easy is it for us to fall away from whatever God's asked us to do? God has an amazing ability to not act as fast as we think he should act. <laughs> but you know what's really amazing in my lifetime is when God finally acts, it moves so fast it makes your head spin sometimes. You wait, you wait, you wait, you wait. You're kind of, God, what's taking you so long? It's taking forever, it's taking forever. And next thing you know, he's finished it. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> How did I go from bottom of the barrel to everything being okay in Usually just a very short period of time. And that's a testimony I've heard from a couple people even here. You know, things were going so bad and all of a sudden everything just turned around. <laughs> all these bad things were just taken right out of your life for a short period of time. <laughs> and then he comes back and does it all over again. But to be steadfast. Do we get into his word and read it? Do we study his word? Do we hang out with people that are going to build us up? Are we building other people up? Or are we living in misery and depression all the time? You know, how do you get out of a depressed attitude, out of a really sad attitude? Go minister to people. Start focusing on others and all of a sudden you forget about how bad you feel. It, it works. It may sound strange, but it works. If you're really having a hard time with yourself, go focus on somebody else. Help them. And see if God doesn't change your attitude and, and make you see different things. But we're to be steadfast. Jesus is that example of steadfastness. We read, we told you about in the reading. He ministered to all these people, but he kept going out. And it says over and over again, he went out early in the morning to find a solitary place to pray. You know, if Jesus needed a solitary place to pray to the Father, we need to take that into that same example and find a solitary time with God to get our strength, to get our spirit renewed. And then he ends up with just some closing remarks and talks about different people just as he did in all of his, all of his messages. So we're going to look at just one verse here probably, one or two verses. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the few letters where Paul does not talk about him being, being an apostle. Why? Because this church loved him. They supported him. They knew who he was. This is one of the churches he did not have to try to defend his position with. So he just wrote and said, this is Paul and Timothy. We're writing to you. But if you look at most of them, he goes, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ, the bondservant of Christ. And he puts this long list of who he was and what, you know, to be able to say, this is who I am. In this letter, he's writing to those that 
that really love him. It would be like some pastor who'd been in this church for a long time writing and saying, this is Pastor so-and-so, I don't need to tell you much more about me because, you know, you know who I am. Uh, you know, think like Pastor Nichols, you know, who's no longer with us, but <laughs> Pastor Nichols, you know, right in this church. 27 years in this church, you know, if he had written this church, it would have been just Pastor Nichols. I'm just, you know, saying I love you and remember you. This is the tone of Paul's letter here. And he tells us that, that Timothy is with him. And this is at a time, and we've talked about this, and at the very end of the letter, it'll tell you that it's signed in Rome. And we know that when Paul was in Rome, he was waiting to be executed. And he was under, Paul was under house arrest. He wasn't in prison in Rome. He was at house arrest. He, and we've told you before, he had four guards with him at all times. And, and we've told you, he loved, he loved having the guards strapped to him. He had a captive audience. Can you imagine being strapped to Paul all day long and listening to him preach? Knowing that you were stuck there for four hours at a time? That you weren't going anywhere else until you were relieved for four hours? Not believing what this guy is saying, but having to listen to him all that time. Listen to him dictate these letters to, to the individuals. But Paul looked at everything with joy. He looked at it that it was going to be for, for Christ. And in another letter he said, many in the household of Caesar greet you. How did he get all those people from Caesar's household? Well, you can't hear the gospel that long without finally deciding to respond. So we see that he is in this place, and he says they're the servants of Jesus Christ. And this word servant literally means a bond servant or a bond slave. And we told you that if you're reading Exodus, you're going to read about bond slaves. A bond slave in those days of Israel was if you got yourself into financial trouble or some form of trouble and you had to sell yourself for service for a period of, of time, which would, in Israel would be no more than seven years because every, or excuse me, no more than 50 years because on the 50th year uh, there was the Jubilee and you would be released. Okay, or seven years, excuse me, seven years would be the Jubilee and then 50 years would be the Golden Jubilee. So every seven years they released everybody back home. So you wouldn't be sailed forever. You wouldn't sell your land forever. God says, this land is your inheritance. You do not sell your land forever. Basically, you rented or what we would call leased your land for a period of time. The closer to the Sabbath year, the, the, the year of Jubilee you were, the less money your, your land was worth. Because they weren't gonna, you couldn't charge full price for your land when you were going to give it back at the end of the year. But if you were seven years until the next Jubilee, you could, your land was worth a lot more because they were going to use it for seven years. But the bond slave would be able to come to the person and say, okay, I'm supposed to be released, but I really like being your servant. You're a good master. Uh, I can't handle my money anyway. I don't have anything. You know, I, I'm going to mess up again. And you're a really good master, and I like being in your, in your service. And at that point, they were made a servant for life. And it's called a bond slave. And they would make an agreement and they would put an earring in their ear that symbolized that they were a servant for the rest of their life. This is the term that Paul is using here. I am your servant by choice for the rest of my life. That should be all of our attitudes toward Jesus. God, I am your servant by choice for life. I'm not waiting for the year of Jubilee to be released. You know, you know I am your servant 
for the rest of my life by choice. This is the term that Paul is using for him and, and Timothy. We have chosen to be your servant. What does it mean to be a servant? You do what the master says. You know, many of us, when we get, become Christians, forget that God is our Lord and master. You know, a lot of us are going, God, I, I want you to save me, and then you go sit in the corner someplace until I need you. That is not the way he does the transaction. He is Lord and master. He says do, and we say, how high do you want me to jump? How far do you want me to run? Not, well, I'll think about maybe doing it. Unfortunately, we all do that more than we should. God, I'll think about, do, I'll think about doing this. That is not treating him as the Lord and master. He is Lord and master. And we talk about him all the time as being Lord. Especially here in America, we talk about him being Lord, but we really do not treat him as Lord in many cases. Lord has the power to tell you what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And yet sometimes we just say, okay, God, you're my, you know, you're my Savior. Uh, you know, and like I said, you know, go sit over there in the corner, and when I need you, I'll, I'll call on you. Uh, God, I need a little bit of money. My bills are, are, good packing, are stacking up. God, I need this blessing. Now, would you come out of that corner and give me, give me what, you, what I need? God, uh, I need a little bit of help here. Things aren't looking right. And if you're telling him to stay in the corner, you know what you're going to hear a lot of times? You might just hear, no, I'm not coming out to help you. You, go, you didn't want me? Go take care of it yourself. And that's if he's in your heart. If he's in your heart, he should be Lord and Master. He says to do, we do. And we talk about this often. There's a lot of commandments in the Bible that you, we don't see in English so much. Pray without ceasing is an imperative. It's a command. We don't necessarily look at it as a command, but it is a command. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus in, in you. Do we give God thanks for everything? Or do we sit there and we grumble, this is just a terrible time, nothing's going right, everything's wrong. Been there, done that myself, so I know others in this room have done that, so you know, I'm not condemning anybody, we all do that. He says, in everything give thanks, and we'll sit there and grumble about it, and gripe about it, forgetting that he says that all things work together for good, and that he is our Lord and Master, and if he decides that we are to suffer like Job, then we need to suffer like Job and be blessed at the end. We need to keep in mind this whole idea that he is Lord, he is master. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, do you realize that everybody who has Jesus Christ in their heart is a saint? No. Now I know like the Catholic Church makes these certain people and they say these are saints, but no, all Christians are saints. What's the saint? Someone who's separated and set apart. We are separated and set apart from the world because we are his children. We are saints. Now, we may not live like saints quite often, but we are saints in, in, in God's statement. When we are saved, God declares in heaven that we are perfect. He justifies us. He says, you are perfect. You, you've accepted my son's sacrifice. I know that we're not perfect. I know that I'm not perfect. 
But God says we are. And how can God say that? Because Jesus paid the debt. And the other thing is, he knows the beginning from the end. He knows what he's going to make us. So God kind of ignores all that middle time when we're being made perfect as we walk with him. Our sanctification, God kind of ignores that. He goes, you are perfect, and then he sees us in our glorified state. And glorified state is when we go to heaven and we are made what he said we were in the beginning. God already says that we're perfect. Satan likes to come along and give us a whole bunch of facts. He'll come along and say, well, you're, you're terrible, you're rotten, you're not worth anything. You know what? Those are nice facts. But the truth is, God says we're perfect. When Satan comes and attacks you and tries to belittle you, your answer to him is, you are absolutely right, but God says I'm perfect. The Father has made me perfect. There's a lot of good power in that. When Satan attacks, you say, God says. What did Jesus say when Satan attacked him in the, in the tri tribulations after he fasted for 40 days? His answers always were the Bible. Thus saith the Lord. And in his case, he kept commenting out of Deuteronomy because he knew Deuteronomy well. Even when Satan gave him partial and incorrect verses, Jesus would give him back corrected verses. We need to understand God's truth toward us. Truth is what is so important to us because Satan's going to come out with facts. We have facts ourselves. We accuse ourselves all the time with how bad we are because we know who we are and what we do. We need to look, though, and say, God says we're perfect and start living according to what God says because he's going to give us the strength to become more like him. How do we become more like him? We read the scriptures. We listen to teachers. We go to church. We fellowship with other believers and build each other up in the truth. And slowly, God changes the way we think. And the more we grow with him, the more we will think like him. And the more we think like him, the more we will start affecting our life and being able to build up others, and the more we will keep increasing. Will we ever think just like God? Absolutely not. <laughs> when we get to heaven, we'll have a pure thought life. But God will still have many things to teach us for all of eternity because we're never going to know everything he knows because if we knew everything he knows, we would be God. And we will never be God. All eternity, we will never be God. He will always be instructing us and teaching us. The good news about it is we won't forget what we learned. <laughs> How many times have you had to relearn the same lesson multiple times? It happens to me a lot. I keep listening. I go, haven't I learned this before? And I, why did I forget it? Good news in heaven, we won't forget. <laughs> then he praises them because of the church with bishops and deacons. It means that they've organized, they're, they're set up. They're not just a church that's scattered. You know, one of the things I love when I'm talking to people, you witness to somebody and hear something, they'll say, well, I don't like organized religion. I'm a smart aleck. I usually ask them, so you like disorganized religion then? <laughs> you know, I don't like disorganization myself. And I know what they're meaning on that. But you know, we need each other as a church. In Hebrews, we're told, forsake not the assembling of yourself, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We need each other in the church. 
And there needs to be organization within the church. And there has to be the truth of God taught. Now, are there churches that are so organized that, there's, that they're gone too far? Probably. There's churches that you can't disagree with anything that they say at any point in what they say. And that gets a little, a little hard. And I've said it, you know, very few things that I'm going to say you have to believe to be a Christian. One of them is that Jesus Christ is the, only, the one and only Son of God, and he is God. That he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again on the third day, and then he went back to heaven, and he's coming back. Beyond that, work it out with you and God. I do believe there's certain things that are very true, and I'm going to teach them to be very true. But if somebody disagrees with me, that's between them and God. Now, if you're going to disagree with me about Jesus being the Son of God and our, our salvation, we've got a problem. Because <laughs> you can't be a Christian without having that truth in existence. And that he rose again from the dead. Those are very fundamental truth. That the Bible is God's word and it is absolutely true is another area. Because if it's not absolutely true and it's not God's word, we might as well just throw it away and we have no hope for anything. If I can pick and choose what I want to believe out of this book, this book is worthless. And we need to keep that in mind. It all has to be true. When I don't understand it, that's my problem, not God's problem. <laughs> then I go to God and go say, would you please show me what is true and why it's true. But he says their church had been organized. It was a well-established church. It wasn't a brand new Bible study out there just getting off the ground. And then he says, grace unto you and peace. Uh, we've talked about grace. Grace is not getting what we deserve. Uh, no, excuse me, that's mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting everything we don't deserve. What do we get from God and his grace? We get eternal life. We get to be made family with God, sons and daughters of God. We get to be made perfect. We get the Holy Spirit to seal us until the day of redemption. All these things, and we, we went through a whole year going through the 51 things that happened to us at the moment of salvation. Those are all gifts of grace. God's grace. When we look at one another in the church, if somebody is saved, we need to give them grace. Because we want grace ourselves. Because I can tell you, if you're upset with somebody because they're not living the way you think they should live, they're probably looking at you and upset with you because you're not living quite the way they think you should live in return. Because each one of us are on an individualized plan of growth with God. All of us grow at a different place, at a different time, at a different speed. And we can sit there all day and judge each other. Well, I, you know, God, you, you fixed this in my life now. Why aren't they fixed? And God's going to say it's none of your business. <laughs> you give them grace because I'm working on them in some other area of their life. The thing we want to look at is, are we growing? Are we growing? If we're growing, then we praise God for his grace. If you look at yourself and you say you're, you're not growing, then you've got a problem. And you have to look and say, what is my relationship with God? Do I know him? Am I being steadfast in what he's telling me to do? Very important. But we don't look at one another and say, well, you know, how come you haven't grown in that area? That starts division. That starts bringing separation. We give grace and we say, praise God you're here. You know, I love what I've seen. You, you have grown so much in this area of your life. 
And it may be a challenge to you. Maybe you need to grow in the area that they've grown in. But it's wonderful to be able to see God's grace. And then Paul goes on and says, peace. We've talked about the definition of peace many times. Peace is that tranquil state of security in the knowledge that I am right with God and I am content with my, my state of being, whatever state it is. Okay? I am content. Wherever God's got me, I'm content. Why? Because I know I'm going to heaven because he's, in my, he's inside me. He's my savior. He's taken me to heaven. I am at peace with God. I'm not at war with God. And no matter what he sends my way, I'm going to be content. That's what peace is all about. When good comes, we're at peace. When apparent bad comes, we're at peace. And I keep saying apparent, or we think it's bad, because God promises it's, it's for good. Anytime bad things come or test or we fail a test, it is not something that's going to should destroy us. It's okay, God, I failed. Forgive me. Let me, go, let me learn better from it and go forward. Or I went through it. God, thank you that you took me through this test. Is that how we look at tests all the time? It's how we should be looking at them, but it isn't always how we look at them. But the more we believe God's word, the more likely we are to, to look at that. Okay, God, don't understand what you're doing, but I'm going to just wait and see. How peaceful would your life be if you get to that point? God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to accept it that you have a reason. Believing God's word. Believing his word. Every test we go through is to say, do you believe my word? <laughs> Every test is directly related to, do we believe it? Do we believe what he said or we don't believe it? Unfortunately, many times we go through the test and we realize we don't, really don't believe what he tells us. And God has to reteach us and reemphasize it until we finally go through the test and realize it's correct. <laughs> His word is correct. And we oftentimes say, I believe, but do we really believe? Do I really believe when it comes down to it that it's true? Do I really believe that I'm a child of the king? Do I really believe that all things work together for good? Do I really believe that God is sovereign and knows what he's doing? Do I really believe whatever it might be that you need to put in that spot? And God tests it. And then he says, the greeting is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking now of his authority again. I'm giving this as a message from God. We, as fellow believers, can talk to one another and encourage people because God will tell us what to say. When we come together as the church, the ecclesia, the, the gathering together of those that are like-minded, we need to encourage one another, build one another up. If we can't get encouragement from the church, where are we going to get encouragement? The world sure isn't going to encourage you as a Christian. You know, they're going to go, well, how dare you think that way? How dare you call what I do a sin? How dare you think that I'm going to go to hell because I haven't accepted Jesus Christ? How dare you do these things? That's the world's view toward us. When we're in the church, we need to love one another, build one another up, encourage one another. 
Because we're going to get beat up enough outside of the group, gathering of the, of the church. Does that mean the church is always going to tell you what you want to hear and that you're a good person? No, there may be a time when they're going to say, I've really been concerned about you because I've watched you, you know, do this or that. But I'm praying for you. And I've shared with you, if you're not praying for somebody, you have no business to criticize their life. Because if you don't love them enough to pray for them, you really don't love them enough to be trying to help them get better. You know, because if you're criticizing them without that love, you're just criticizing them. You're trying to make yourself look better. You need to be praying for them and loving them to build them up. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to just learn of your love and your care. Lord, we ask that you help us all the time to walk in your spirit, to have you teaching us and growing us. Lord, if there's anybody who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior and really know you in a personal way that put all their trust in them, that they will, at this time or when they listen to this tape, pray and say, confess that they're a sinner, they deserve punishment, and ask for you to come into their heart and give them true life that comes only through you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.